podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders as we continue to explore the critical role of water in our 50-year food security conundrum. In the first episode, I referred to former CSIRO chief Dr Megan Clark's prognosis that in the next 50 years, we will eat more food than has been eaten in the entire history of humanity. And currently, we only know how to produce 30% of that. Now, water is the underlying key to any notion of enmeshing the key three Ps of productivity, principles and provenance. In the first episode, we examined global conflict and agreement over water with global cross-boundary water policy expert, Dr David Mickle, and what we could learn as we resolve these same issues in Australia. In the second episode, we focused on the Australian strategy for how we best utilise the water that's left after human use and environmental flows. We spoke to the CEO of the National Irrigators Council, Steve Wan, and the former CEO of iconic water authority, Collie Amberley Water, John Cullerton. As we have heard, the very essence of any agricultural productivity is, of course, water especially in Australia, the driest populated continent, and yet it's the one with the least utilisation of available surface water and where whole towns depend on irrigation water for their very existence. Collie is a good example of that. Similarly, any principled approach to agricultural production has to be intrinsically merged with the needs of our natural environment. A third of our agriculture comes from the same river basin that the environment depends on, the Murray-Darling Basin. Since 1917, the three eastern states plus South Australia have been trying to agree on where that water goes, and in 2012 we finally achieved consensus under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The implementation and oversight of that has been put in the hands of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, under its chairman, the Honourable Neil Andrew AO, the unassuming but undeniable king of rural water management in Australia and certainly a key agriminder for our agricultural future. And he joins me here in Adelaide today. Welcome, Neil. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction, Chris. I'm not sure about king, but I am sure that the authority, the term authority implies authority. We are much more a matter of getting cooperation between the states and it's a privilege to have that role and to be here. Thank you. How easy is it to get the states to talk to each other? I did an interview with Dr. David Mickle earlier in this series, and he was talking about the difficulty to get Turkey talking with Syria and Palestine and Israel about sharing the Tigris-Euphrates system. And he said, that must be a piece of cake in Australia. Is it any easier in Australia with those states? Uh, Well, it's difficult. Uh, But that's uh, perhaps a little unfair. I can't make that comment on the states without clarifying it. Remember, it took from 1893 to 1901 before we could even get them all to agree to what our federation should look. And when they agreed to federation, it was with the authority for the management of water remaining vested in the states. And it then took until 1917 to get the states on the matter of water to sit around a common table and agree to establish a Murray, what was then known as the River Murray Commission. So it's always been protracted, always been a shade difficult, 
But to be fair to my state premiers uh, and our state premiers, we actually elect them as state premiers to be parochial. So it's a bit inevitable that there'll be that level of tension. So one of the biggest tensions in determining an agreement about water has been the demand from irrigation. Now, when I was at university, um, my economics lecturer was a highly respected guy called Professor Bruce Davidson, now passed on, uh, but he used to pace up and down the front of the lecture theatre telling us that irrigation in Australia was a non-starter. He wrote a book called The Northern Myth, which dismissed the Ord River scheme as being something that we should have ever even considered. He could considered that the Snowy Mountain scheme was completely uneconomical and he actually suggested to us that you'd be better off in a drought um, paying the farmers just to let all the animals die in the paddock rather than fund and maintain the sort of irrigation schemes we have done. Now, this is a man of 40 years ago, but nonetheless, was he right at that time and is he right today? Well, in 2018, I don't think paying farmers to let the animals die in the paddock would have much political traction. But let me just expand on this by saying that fortunately for me, one of the predecessors in my federal seat of Wakefield was a chap called Bert Kelly, a great economic rationalist of his time. And when an election was announced in those days, Bert would say, I feel a dam coming on, because he always thought dams were being built for purely political reasons and not for economic advantage. Things have changed dramatically. We now have a world demand for food. We have a Murray-Darling Basin that is astonishingly productive, produces, what, over $22 billion worth of income for Australia. We are, as you know, a nation that relies on having food to export. Uh, and, uh, no, I, I think that right now irrigation has a great deal to be proud of because we are very efficient water users. So while we're talking about dams... Let's just talk about the need for dams, which is often portrayed in the press. And let's take the Clarence River. Now, the Clarence River, when it's in flood, sticks out about 20 megalitres a second, which you actually look at that, it's putting out three Sydney harbours per day. Mm. And in 1.6 days, it would spit out most of the 2750 gigalitres that you're trying to save in the Murray scheme. And yet we let that run in straight out into the sea. And if we go a bit further north to the Burdekin, when that's in flood, it's putting out uh, around about 3,400 gigalitres a day, which is five Sydney harbours every day. Um, and therefore, it would take 19 hours to get the amount of water we're trying to save per year in the Murray-Darling system. 19 hours just by theoretically damming the entire Burdekin system. Obviously, that's not possible. But somewhere in the middle, there must be an opportunity to capture some of the water from great rivers like the Clarence and the Burdekin on the coast, funnel them back inland, get them back into the system and actually make use of that water rather than the alternative of shutting down whole communities because we're trying to retrieve it from existing flows. Well, I would challenge the comment about shutting down whole communities, and we'll no doubt take that up later in the interview. And it is fair to say that the Burdekin, uh, so far north that there is all sorts of irrigation opportunities in the north currently being picked up by the management in different ways of the Burdekin. We right now happen to be sitting in Adelaide, and there will be everyone in Adelaide saying it would be a great idea to redirect the Clarence from the east to the west, I'm not sure that there'd be as much enthusiasm in New South Wales for the redirection of the Clarence. That's a very much political and environmental question. And from a Murray-Darling point of view, 
it is difficult to find sites within the Murray-Darling Basin for additional dams that wouldn't be huge lakes of relatively shallow water storage producing long-term salinity problems. So that managing the water in the Murray-Darling is a matter of managing the resource we have got. You could talk about diverting the Clarence and future governments may consider that given that water is such a scarce and valuable resource in Australia. But right now the task of the authority is to implement a basin plan and that's manage effectively the resources of the Murray-Darling Basin. What about piping water down from the Burdekin? There was, the, in the, one of the state elections up there, there was someone who went to the people with that proposal, and I think he was going to put a railway line on top of the pipes as well. Lots of proposals like that. Proposals, as you know, equally in Western Australia, to bring water from the Ord or the Kimberleys down to Perth, and in one case, to bring them down to South Australia. Frankly, Chris, water is very heavy stuff. And it's not downhill. We'd look at it as if it was an atlas, thinking we're going downhill. It's not all downhill. It has to be lifted. It has to be pressurised. It's heavy stuff. Energy cost is enormous. If it were possible, governments would be doing it. When you say possible, do we read economic? Uh, yes, you read economic. Uh, yes, so, right. in the in the just after the last war, President Eisenhower in America decided that he would cover America with in, with an interstate system. Totally uneconomic to do that. It was a huge cost, all built out of concrete. But he believed for the security of the United States and being able to ship military equipment around and protect in the future the people, he would build this thing and just write it off as a cost of living in the United States. Why isn't water harvesting just an infrastructure cost of living in Australia that, that governments just have to bear without constantly trying to justify them economically? because of the extraordinary cost that would be involved in moving the volume of water you're talking about. And we already, what we are saying is, can't we more efficiently use the resource we already have? And that's the task that the authority meets. Uh, that's the challenge that the authority has to meet. Other proposals may well one day be floated, but it won't be in my term as chair of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. And I'm very happy to accept the responsibility of making sure that the resources of the Murray-Darling Basin are used as efficiently as possible. So let's talk a little bit about the Murray-Darling Basin then as it is. Now, when Charles Sturt first travelled down the Murrumbidgee and then the Murray in a little whaleboat back in 1830... Um, the mouth of the Murray that he came to was actually at Wellington, which is 52 kilometres up from what is currently effectively now the mouth because of this barrage system. And he then struggled to get through some of those lakes and he noticed they became increasingly saline and, and they were definitely a sort of an estuary that was there between the sea and the mouth at Wellington. Now, in 1941, after the locks had been put in, uh, the, the, in their wisdom, the government decided to block off the mouth right down at the Coorong, right down where the sea meets, if you like, the entrance from those lakes, and then create effectively freshwater lakes. And since about 2006, those barrages have not really been holding the, uh, the freshwater in. They've been more holding the seawater out, a bit like the dikes in Holland. Um, you know, and and yet, 
we, we continually see those lakes being so shallow that effectively they're just massive evaporation ponds. Now, once again, we come to the fact that we're pouring water down into South Australia to make South Australia feel like we love them and they want some of the water. And then effectively, a lot of that water is just wasted. Now, the justification they give are things like a tourist business, a whole irrigation thing is now built up around fresh water being in those lakes, fishermen, you know, all that sort of thing. High Marsh Island got a marina, which isn't tidal. You know, all those arguments, surely that is small beer compared with the cost of of sucking all that water out of irrigation communities further up the Murray, which could be solved at much less cost simply by putting a weir in at Wellington to protect Adelaide's water supply and effectively protect the river. Maybe a bit of compensation to to some of them, maybe a little bit of environmental work to uh, to protect some of the um, the other rivers that are on the side of the Coorong down there. But compared to what what's actually happening, it seems so logical to me that at least that should be on the agenda, and yet it never even gets a look in. People just accept South Australia saying, yes, we, we want to have those freshwater lakes, get over it, give us the water. And Chris, my response is that as an authority and as the authority chair, everything is on the agenda. We're very happy to look at imaginative ways of managing the lower lakes, very happy to look at imaginative ways of uh, managing other areas of major evaporation loss, such as Menindee Lakes. It's fair to make a comparison between the two. But the point that I keep stressing, and we might come back to this in a moment, is that what the authority wants to achieve, what the plan allows for, is additional flows down the river. And those flows are essential all the way to the sea because we are trying, by any statistic, we are trying to move at least a million tonnes of salt out of the system and into the sea every year. And what the Murray-Darling has unique about it is it is a relatively low-flow river. It's, what, 14% of the flow of the Nile. It's 0.25% of the flow of the Amazon. Now, it's a low-flowing river, and we are trying to maximise the flow in order to carry the salt load to the sea. And one of the things that's been very successful has been reducing the impact of salinity across the entire basin, but it will never succeed unless I, sorry, the authority, continues to move at least a million tonnes of salt to the sea every year. But surely that water carrying the salt sitting in two big evaporation pans, which is Lake Albert and Lake Alexandrina, just makes that problem harder. If that was an estuary with the sea actually accessing as far up as Wellington, for example, um, you know, wouldn't that job be easier? This needs to be water that gets to the sea. It's a flow-based exercise. And uh, I've uh, looked at uh, the proposals for thing like, things like Lock Zero, for example. It doesn't solve any of the issues that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan attempts to solve, and that is to maximise, without unduly harming irrigation communities, to maximise the flow of water to the sea. Chris, I like to use a very simple illustration and I say to everybody, if you look at the Murray-Darling Basin in an average year, and I guess there's no such thing, but in an average year, 33,000 gigalitres of water flows through the system from the north, from the top of the Darling, all the way down to Goolwa. Now, in a sense, all of that 33,000 gigalitres belongs to the environment. That's what it was created to irrigate, for want of a better word. What we have chosen as a society to do is to borrow water from that annual environmental flow. 
and we did it responsibly. Well, in fact, we've done it responsibly for the entire history because the irrigation expansion has been a huge bonus for Australia. But of that 33,000 gigalitres, about 24,000 effectively, after you lose overbank flows, makes its way down the system. And we have been borrowing 13,000 gigalitres each year for irrigation. What we discovered is that's had too much of an impact on the environment and also reduced the flow into the lower lakes and the capacity to carry saline water. So we're now saying the plan suggests we stop borrowing 13,000 in round figures and attempt to borrow 10,000. I'm unapologetic about that borrowing, by the way, because it's generated the wealth that is part of the basin. But I have to go from 13,000, which is a substantial part of the 24, down to 10. So the plan does, and it's uncomfortable, but the plan says to irrigation communities, 13,000 is too much, sorry. We need to reduce it by about 20%, come back to 10,000. So we've heard earlier from uh, Steve Wan, who is the CEO of the Irrigators Council. We've heard from John Cullerton, who is the CEO of Colliambly Water, probably one of the greatest exemplars of how to do a job with improving efficiencies in water use. And I think we've done a pretty good job there with those two uh, in those two areas. But the water that we've currently either bought back or saved and put back into the system in order to um, re-wet or re-contribute to the environmental demands of wetlands and other parts along the Murray, how we attack being able to be more efficient in that use rather than just let nature take its course so that we, we really do minimise the amount of water we have to take off viable agricultural businesses. You recall that I spoke about finding 3,000 gigalitres And in fact, uh, finding that 3,000 gigalitres is a matter of either purchasing, and that's been capped at 1,500 gigalitres, but either purchasing or offering water uh, by assisting irrigators to be more efficient users of it, and 50% of the water that they save with more efficient use, having been assisted by the government to make that saving, they hand that 50% to the government towards the target of 2,700, 3,200 gigalitres. Now... Part of that efficient water water use was to say, what if we had the environment also efficiently using water? And it was calculated that that could provide 650 gigalitres of the 3,000. A review has found that the figure is probably more accurately 605 gigalitres. I don't want to be too long-winded about this, but many have thought that was water going from the environment to the irrigator. That's not a fair comment. It is, in fact, part of the 3,000, 3,200 gigalitres originally calculated when the Basin Plan was put in place. And each of the state governments have come up with schemes where environmental water could be used more efficiently, where you can get environmental benefit without the use of additional water. Those sorts of schemes would involve, for example, and we've been doing this, um, taking a conduit Paracuta forests uh, at, uh, you know, around Echuca and, and saying, what if we moved with the appropriate infrastructure water into that um, forest area? We then left it there for five or six weeks, then let it out 
and then when it came downstream to Hatter, we lifted it from the river into the Hatter Lakes environmental area and left it there for five or six weeks, then let it out. And when it got down as far as Chowler, we pushed it uh, with appropriate infrastructure into the Chowler floodplain. Five or six so each weeks. one of those uses a bit of it, but all the overflow from the bit then goes on and is used again, rather than just disappearing so, into the system. So that without, so, so that without additional water being used, we've had an environmental benefit. Right. Now that's one of the schemes. Uh, effective constraints, so you can move water down the river and get overflow at appropriate points, is another way to get environmental benefit without needing additional water. Uh, evaporation in Menindee Lakes is one of the controversial areas where the New South Wales government is looking at making savings so that there would be additional water available. That's all part of what is now a 605 gigalitre scheme and we won't really know until 2023-2024 which one of these schemes is working most effectively. We do know that 605 gigalitres is a reasonable estimate of what might be achieved by this technique. And we sort of, all these numbers sort of roll off your tongue, but 605 gigalitres is a bit more than a Sydney harbour full of water that we're trying to save. And I mean, that's a hell of a lot of water that we try and save every single year by just recycling water. Or, and when we talk about this so-called upwater from to 2750 up to the, by the extra 450 gigalitres of extra water that they're now targeting, you know, that's a whole Sydney harbour of water. And, and they've, all the low-hanging fruit's been taken. We've heard from Steve Wan that he, he's not sure how much more the irrigators are going to be able to do. Um, you know, th- are these figures going to keep rolling out of the, every time we do a bit more, particularly if we get a Labor government in the future um, who have got an allegiance to, to a, a much more strident Green Party? Are we still going to see these extras and more you get, the more you ask for? Thank you for that, Chris, because this is a very non-partisan exercise and we've had both sides of the parliament endorsing what the Murray-Darling Basin Plan attempts to achieve. Federally, that's been very important. It's also worth noting that the Basin Plan had to pass through 10 parliaments in its present form in order to be actioned and they were parliaments of various colours, so it's not a particularly partisan exercise. And I'm sorry if we've simply been rolling figures. We'll come back to a moment to the 450, which is also part of the plan to go from 27 to 32, as you say. It's not my intention to simply roll off figures, but I do want to reassure listeners that the entire Basin Plan endorsed by both major parties, uh, Coalition, that is, and Labor Party, the entire Basin Plan is subject to review in 2023 and 24. So if the 605 is not being achieved, there will then be a reconciliation. This is the 605 of efficiencies from environmental use. That's it, yes. Thank you. 605, you're right, it does roll off the tongue. Mm. 605 efficiencies for environmental use is not being achieved. It will be subject to a reconciliation. And could that reconciliation involve more compulsory acquisition of water from farmers? Um, Well, first of all, compulsory acquisition... As in buying the water off them compulsorily, yeah. But there have never been any compulsory acquisition. No, that's right. So there won't be more... But could it? There won't be more compulsory acquisition. Okay, good point. point. Um, uh, Look, uh, people shouldn't imagine that the authority that I'm proud to chair suddenly comes to an end and so does the management of the real basin in 2024 when the plan is in place. The plan is merely the first step in what is now 
a national view of the way we should manage water. And the reconciliation provides the opportunity to make whatever adjustments are necessary in order to achieve this goal. The rest of the world is watching us do this because there aren't many countries in the world who don't share the same problem as we do, water that runs across state and in many cases national boundaries, and they're saying we've not been able to solve it, but Australia is taking positive steps to do so. So, Neil, um, we talked before about the 450 gigalitres so-called upwater. So what that means is that we achieved our initial target of 2750. It's become the sort of uh, the bandied around number. And now there was always an expectation that we would go for another 450 gigalitres. Where did that figure come from? And do you think that it's realistic or do you think that, you know, that's like another Sydney Harbour full every year? How are we going to find that? And the 450 is a challenge, Chris. I wouldn't pretend otherwise. But the 450 is there in order to maximise the environmental benefits that we can have. And significantly, first, there is a pilot, might be three pilot programs running, certainly one in South Australia I'm aware of, and I think two in New South Wales, to see how could we actually extract another 450 gigalitres of water without negative environmental or social consequences for the towns that are otherwise being directly impacted, the very things Steve Wan's spoken about. And the pilot programs are one way to look at whether it's possible or not. But the most, the other most significant change is that at the, at the last Ministerial Council, in order to, the 450 and the 650 as it was, 605 are in fact linked, and at the last Ministerial Council they said, if we're to have the 605, we need at least... 62, I think, gigalitres of the 450. So let's expand the 450 so it doesn't just come from irrigation use, but maybe other community activities. And that's what they're doing in order to see if we can reach the 450. People shouldn't despair of the 450. I alert to this concern Steve once expressed, because we have until 2023 to find ways to achieve it without social, negative social or economic impact. So as chair of of the authority, um, are you satisfied that everything has been done to achieve what's an undeniable need to return more water to the environment? I don't think anyone would argue with that as being something that we should be aiming for. But do you satisfy that we've done it in a way that has absolutely emphasised the need to still maximise agricultural production? Um, rather than perhaps some some environmental nice to do or whim that that you know you could argue was either not there before, and I of course we've talked already about the the lakes at the mouth of the Murray, or some other sort of um, uh, state run pet scheme, because the cost potentially to communities is significant. You know, Minister Wong's loss of Turali Station, and you know, two hundred people without work suddenly in Burke. Okay, if we've got to do it, we've got to do it. But are you satisfied we've done every possible thing to minimise that? First, I should say, I'm very conscious of the impact on towns like Duran Bandy, for example, where the purchase of water has had an enormous negative impact on that community. And that's why the government took the step of saying to the authority, we will cap water to the Murray-Darling, I beg your pardon, when I say the authority, I should have said to the CHUO, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, we will cap water extractions, direct purchases at 1,500 in order to minimise this impact on communities. So I am personally satisfied that everything has been done to be as equitable as possible in this acquisition, redirection of about 20% of irrigated water. 
has everything been done? I guess not. We're a human institution. The task of the authority is frequently, more frequently than we're comfortable with, to be pragmatic in order to accommodate the views, differing views of each one of the states. Uh, but if we are to be fair about it, equitable about it, and do it in a way which has minimum negative impact on communities, we've certainly done all we could and been alert to any suggestions about other ways that we could achieve our goals. So, Neil, thank you very much for being part of AgriMinders. You are certainly an AgriMinder, and I might say you've done this entire interview without a single note in front of you and without any bureaucrats whispering in your ears telling you what you were supposed to say. It's been a very valuable part of AgriMinders, and I thank you very much for coming. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Misrepresentation of what we're about, it doesn't matter what the profession is, is a real challenge, and the opportunity to put on record what we're doing is really appreciated. I'm It is a privilege to chair the authority. No worries. Thank you. In this episode, we've heard definitive answers from AgriMinder Neil Andrew to the key question on everyone's lips in the world of irrigated agriculture. Firstly, the savings targets were probably as good as we could achieve when you consider the independent sovereignty of the states involved. But I must say, with all due respects to Neil, as regards the artificial freshwater lakes at the mouth of the Murray, I'm not so sure that a return to them being sea-linked estuarine lakes is not achievable, while still achieving the flushing effect required. It's an important question because the evaporating of so much of the saved water out of these artificial freshwater lakes is frankly an extravagance which equates to a significant reduction in the size of, say, the cotton crop, which generates $500,000 per gigalitre of irrigation water. Secondly, we can probably be confident that the additional savings will be achieved by careful management of the environmental water. Further, it's unlikely that there would be federal bipartisan support for the compulsory acquisition of water, and politically, I sense this will likely be a step too far. But hey, in Australian politics, anything is possible. As for the decision as regards what to do with the water rights, these are owned by farmers. And so this decision, like the use of their land, must lie with them. Demand and market forces will in fact determine these decisions. And finally, harvesting of wasted water from coastal and northern rivers is in my view absolutely critical to our future. The cost of this infrastructure goes well beyond the analysis of The Economist and is much more about survival in a drying world and the achievement of our 50-year food production targets. This must be done, in my view, and it seems that the political winds are changing in that regard. In our next episode, we'll move on to yet another complication in our 50-year quest to produce 70% more food than we're currently able. The conflict between farming the topsoil and mining the subsoil. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin, Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.